Well, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. This is a special holiday for us in our tradition, and following worship, I want to encourage you to come forward and spend a moment here at this beautiful addition to our communion table to see the saints in light and to remember those who have gone before us in this past year. Um, likewise, if you are a member, if a name has been read that is your kith and kin, please come and take a rose home with you, and remember that we at St. John's Church are with you in your grief. Uh, in this time. I look upon that rose and know that you're deeply loved, not only by God, but by the members of this church. Kindred, let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts and minds be pleasing and acceptable unto you, our guide and our destination. Amen. I saw a skit recently that was pretty commonplace, but it was kind of fun because I was looking for Bible studies. And so I watched a video of some Christians having a Bible study in a living room, and I was hoping to pick up some notes. Uh, so I'm watching these folks, and the Bible study group is about seven or eight people in a nicely appointed home, and they all look like they were doing pretty well for themselves. And so I was excited to see these people praying and studying their Bible. Uh, and that's, it's always beautiful to see Christians studying the Bible together. And they got to the moment where they would pray and the pastor was there in the living room with them and they're all praying together and they're asking God to show up in their lives in a very real and tangible way. And they're doing the really dangerous thing. They're asking God for a sign. I don't do that. I get enough of them. But they were asking God to send them a sign and tell them what they needed to do. And suddenly the heavens parted there in that living room and a light shone down upon them and the voice of God Almighty in heaven spoke. And God said to them, you know what is good. Sell all of your possessions and give alms to the poor. Give away that which you own for those who are in need and follow me. And they all started to sweat and then the pastor jumped up and said, this house is haunted. And they all ran out. Because they didn't want to give up their stuff. They'd asked for a sign from God, and God spoke from the Bible and said, you've got to do what Jesus says. And they said, I would rather do anything else. And they decided God was a ghost, because they didn't want to make that sacrifice. I think I probably would do the same thing. So I'm very careful with what I ask God to show me. But I know that it takes... Uh, a lot of courage to make real sacrifice. That's a word that we use pretty frequently uh, in the church and in our culture, but I don't know that we think over much about what it means. Jesus is, Jesus is using the Pharisees and the powerful leaders of the church as a foil. This week, he's probably exaggerating uh, their behavior, but in a way that would make sense to his listeners. He's talking about the pastors of the big churches and the powerful preachers and teachers of his age. And he says, you know, they love to, they love to show off and you know, make themselves look important. And if that weren't enough, they pile up burdens on other people's shoulders. They tell them how they ought to behave. And then they don't do it themselves. They don't lift even a finger, he says, to do the things they ask other people to do. But as for you, you're not going to have to worry about that. You're simply going to humble yourselves and do that which is necessary without expecting to have the head seat at the table or be celebrated 
or written about in the newspapers. I think about this tension between sacrifice and humility. I don't think that there is anything particularly immoral about being recognized for the sacrifices that you've made on behalf of your community. There was a big debate in the church. I think we've put it to bed now, but it was very fashionable in the 1990s and in the 2000s that when somebody gave a gift to the church, they donated some money upon their departure from this world, that we would not put a brass plaque up on the church with their name on it. I remember hearing in seminary that our churches are covered in brass plaques. We've got to get away from that. People should just be a cheerful giver. I don't, I don't buy into that. I derive a great deal of joy from walking through the church and reading the names etched into the stained glass windows and seeing the little plaques put on the furniture and the pews and even reading in names in the front of a pew Bible. I, that's meaningful for me. It connects me to the ancestors. It connects me to the people who went before us and helped build this church. And frankly, I don't believe that most people want their name put on a building so that they can be celebrated after they die. I think that most people want that so that they can live as an example for the people who will come after them. So if you want to give some big, huge gift to the church when you die, I'm fine with that, really. It's totally okay. We'll name something cool after you, I promise. Uh, but, but I think that there is a tension between the work that we do out of a sense of obligation to God and our fealty and devotion to God and that which we do in order to heap praise upon ourselves. And I don't think that there's ever been a time in human history where it's easier to purport to care about something and then not actually have to do anything to support that cause. I'm going to start with the most controversial one because it's at the top of my mind. But I've never seen in my life so much ink spilled over the issue of abortion in the United States of America. I grew up after uh, Roe versus Wade had been established law. I watched Supreme Court justices all sit dutifully in front of the Senate for their appointment hearings. All of them asked about their opinion on Roe versus Wade, and each of them, whether they were conservative, progressive, appointed by a Democrat or Republican, all of them said together, Roe versus Wade is established law. And so we didn't really think about it very much until it was overturned. And now we're back to having to think about it. And regardless of how I feel about that particular issue, one thing that I do notice and that I have to acknowledge is that oftentimes the most vocal opponents to reproductive choice lift not a finger to help those who have yet been born or those women who are in the terrible situation of choosing between the safety of themselves and their family, and the potential life that they carry within themselves. In a previous church, I was asked to preach about this very thorny issue. It was a politically diverse congregation. I wanted nothing less in the world than to use that word, abortion, in the pulpit. I said, no. <laughs> and then I was swiftly reminded that it was a Congregationalist church and that I would be preaching about that. And so I did. 
But before I did that, I knew that we had several very vocal opponents of abortion in our congregation. These were folks who were, quote unquote, pro-life. People who were fiercely opposed to abortion under most circumstances. And I was being asked to get into the pulpit and potentially alienate these people. I didn't want to do that. So in the month leading up to when I was going to give that sermon, I went and I sat down in their living rooms. I went and I met with each one of these families. And I asked them about it. I said, I'm going to talk about this. And I said, I'm going to share how I feel about it. But you know that you don't have to agree with me. We're not a church where the pastor's word somehow trumps the Bible. We're a congregation where we believe that God gave you the ability to think for yourself. And that God expects that of you. So I don't want you to feel like I'm preaching this against you or over you. And what I learned was this. Of those families who were in my church who were against abortion, to a one to a one, they had sacrificed astronomically to save the lives of children who had been born in terrifically terrifying circumstances. One of my most outspoken pro-life couples in the church had adopted 22 children and had put all of them through college. That is sacrifice. That's putting your, that, that is putting your, that is putting your money where your mouth is, to put it that way. And I think for them to have done that and to preach what they preached, I think it carried water for me. And it gave me something to really think about. But I know that most people in America who advocate on behalf of this very nebulous group of people called the unborn, for them it is not a very costly kind of advocacy. Because the unborn don't ask very much of us at all. Uh, If we're going to fight for the supposed rights of the unborn, we don't have to really pay any money. We don't have to feed anybody. We might go to a rally or something if we've got time on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. But beyond that, it's simply about vocalizing a particular belief. I think about that a lot. Because to advocate for other supposed marginalized populations, say children born into abject poverty, it isn't enough to simply advocate for them. We've got to lift that burden. We've got to pay money. We've got to find sacrificial ways of housing their parents, the people who are caring for them. That's hard work. Likewise, I often think about veterans and the United States of America. As a child of a combat veteran, I think about his life, my father's life, and his father's life, and the trials that they faced when they came home. And I think about how it is an issue that seems to bridge the partisan divide, something that both Democrats and Republicans will pay lip service to when the time comes. But then I think about the actual sacrifice, the actual work that is required to care for that population. 
And if America truly cared, I think even, even a fraction of what they claim to care about veterans, not a single one would be sleeping on our streets. Not a single one of them would be suffering in agony from war wounds that could be treated with medicine, treatments that they can't get because nobody's willing to pay for it. All of this is on my mind when we come to Memorial Day or Veterans Day or Armed Services Day. I think about that. I think about how easy it is to claim that we support the troops or that we love our veterans. But yet, what are we doing? Are we actually making any sacrifices? No, Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats. But as for you, you're not going to do that. You will humble yourself. Humble yourself. We have a population in this country of folks who are elderly and alone. I think about them a lot because I see them a lot. Just about every Wednesday night, I go out to a, a managed care facility or a nursing home or a memory care facility, and folks come into the room, and me and my silly little volunteer orchestra, we play music for them. Play songs we think people, we played the Muppet medley, the theme from the Muppets, the other, just because we think people would like it. They do, they like it. You know, we do uh, uh, Coltrane, we do uh, Copeland, we do some classical music, some Beethoven, some Bach. Uh, and people really enjoy it. We do it for free. I mean, it's not free for us, it costs me my Wednesday nights. But when I sit down in that chair and I get ready to play that music with all of these other people, I give thanks for my father, who made me play that cursed violin for years when I was terrible at it. When music teachers went to him and said, the boy can't play the violin. <laughs> He's clinically unable. <laughs> and my father said, I don't care. He's got to do what I say. So I would go into the room and close the door and he'd set the timer for 45 minutes and read the Wall Street Journal like a good rock-ribbed Republican. And if he didn't hear howling cat screeches coming from the next room, he'd reset the timer. I just did it. I didn't know why. I, did. I thought I knew why I made that sacrifice as a kid. I thought it was so I could pay for seminary. So I played a lot of music in my early 20s. And, you know, bar bars don't pay well, but weddings do. And I got money from that. I was like, this is why dad made me do it. That's not why dad made me do it. I think he made me do it because he knew that someday I'd be old enough to understand that I had something that I could give away for free that would bring joy into other people's lives. Well, here I am celebrating it in the position of honor in front of the synagogue. But I think that what we have to deal with realistically as Christians is that it's insufficient to be right or to show up on the right side of history, as we're fond of saying, or to have the right opinions, ideas, or morals, that is anemic and insufficient. I would give anything for us to care less about voicing or vocalizing the right opinions or the politically correct opinions 
than actually go out and do the thing that it takes to give life to those values. The Pharisees praise God. They go to church on Sunday. They tithe, probably. They say the right words and pray the right prayers. But Jesus is making it abundantly clear that that is woefully insufficient to what God wants from us. And in fact, God would rather that we not do those things and do the actual work of the Gospels. Quietly, humbly, not as masters, not as rabbis, not as teachers, but as servants. This humility from hummus, the, the dust of the earth, to eat dust, is to be humble, is to, to feed on the dust of the earth. Humility is to first go and do that which God is asking you to do at whatever cost. And then be an evangelist for those causes and those things. Costly sacrifice. There are so many lonely people in our community who want nothing more than to be present with another human being. We're not, we're not at odds with being with other people. How many of us have spent a tired hour on a Saturday afternoon scrolling on our phones or looking at social media, basking in the sort of simulated presence of other human beings? I think there's very little difference between doing that and sitting in a chair in somebody's living room who hasn't talked with another person for a week. It doesn't take much effort to show up and do that. It doesn't cost you anything more than the gasoline that it takes to drive. It simply takes your willingness to sacrifice a bit of your time. The humility to take the gifts that you have and place them into the employment and service of individuals who cannot pay you back is the path of Christian discipleship. And if you need somebody else to see you doing good deeds, to validate you or make you feel good about having done those things, I'll give you two audiences. First, the saints who have gone before us. When I passed my first ordination interview at the age of 24, 25, a gentleman passed me a note following that difficult meeting that said simply, Nathan, your father Rusty is looking down on you right now and he is beaming with pride. I think about that every time I sit down and I play my violin in that silly little orchestra for people who really need a bit of music in their lives. I think about what he would want me to do. Does it bring him a measure of comfort and pride to know that his investment, those 45 minute sessions that he spent listening to his poor, woefully inept son practice the violin. And if that isn't sufficient, know that God sees the work that you do and is pleased. Because if God's pleasure at your sacrifice isn't sufficient, I don't know what to say to help you. I don't know how to give you what you need. To know that if you choose today or tomorrow or someday a month from now to set aside time, money, 
talents, whatever you have, to do something in service to those who cannot repay you, to know that God is delighted and proud of you. If that's not enough, I don't know what to say. So our humility cannot be based on simply proclaiming that which we believe is true. Even if we do it to the powers and principalities, even if we do it all day long, march in the streets if you want, sign petitions. Been doing it for years. But rather we have to sacrifice. We have to do something painful that we would rather not do in order to make that commitment real on our journey of discipleship. That's what humility is. Humility, it's not even enough to say I was wrong. I will show you, I will demonstrate to you, I will sacrifice to make my commitments real in the world. I think that our ability to humble ourselves is a key indicator of our maturity and our discipleship. But the other thing that this does, sacrificial giving, giving our money, time, whatever we have, whatever we don't have, giving until it hurts, I think that this also demonstrates our faith in God. For if we believe what this says is true, we can know beyond a reasonable doubt that God will provide for us, that everything is going to work out, that everything will be well, that we don't need to worry, we don't need to fear about what we'll eat or what we'll wear, but that God will take care of us. And so giving, giving that which we don't think we can afford to give is a way to prove to God that we trust God and that we are honest in our convictions. To demonstrate to God beyond a shadow of a doubt that, well, our faith is in you, Lord. Now show us your faithfulness. I think that that gives God joy. Finally, I think that we need to consider this when we pray. Prayer is a very powerful tool that we've been given. We were given prayer by Jesus Christ and told to pray by the authority of his name. But I also think that if we pray for something to change, we can test the validity of our prayer by studying whether or not we ourselves have done anything at all to bring that new reality to life. I, uh, I don't tend to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I will stand out of respect and I will put my hand over my heart. But I take things like vows very, very seriously. And I won't say a vow unless I am fully committed to the very real and physical sacrifices that that vow is going to require from me. So these days, for a constellation of reasons, I do not pledge my allegiance to anything other than God. That's my choice. And I don't expect you to make that choice right now. 
You can pledge your allegiance however you want. But a prayer is a pledge. And when we pray for the unborn or the veterans, or we pray for the environment, we pray for those who are unhoused and sleeping rough, and we pray for the hungry, and we pray for the refugee, I believe that it is incumbent upon our discipleship to revisit those prayers and to test them against that which we have done, actually done. Because if we have done nothing to be co-conspirators with God in bringing about that that which we think is best, then we didn't say a prayer at all. We voiced an opinion. We stated an idea. We are editorializing into the ether. No, a prayer has to be tested against the sacrifices that we are willing to make in service to that prayer. We cannot put all of this on God because Jesus says that's insufficient. We have to go and do. And to do that requires us to be humble. I'm preaching to the choir. This is a church that is absolutely filled with people who sacrifice for each other. I'd be hard-pressed to find another congregation that gives as much as you do or cares as much as you do for each other. It is absolutely, it, it, is a, it is a miracle, and it is beautiful, and it gives me inspiration and hope. Simply watching St. Johners take care of each other um, convinces me of the reality of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Gospels. So I'm not standing up here offering words of correction. If anything, I stand in your shadow, and I would aspire to give and sacrifice to the level that all of you do for each other out of a deep sense of love and appreciation. But I know that this is an uncommon thing in this world. And so if I have any application principle this week, it's that you would continue to let your light shine. That through your humble service to the gospel, you would continue steadfastly to sacrifice on behalf of those who cannot repay you for your sacrifice. I think that by doing so, many things will happen. St. John's Church will continue to thrive and grow. Our community will be continually lifted out of places of darkness and despair and hunger and hopelessness. People's lives will be saved and changed. But more important than any of this is that God will be pleased and delighted and that God in Jesus Christ will be alive in all of us and that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as members of his body and as citizens in his kingdom. That is worth it. So with humility and thanks to God for having given us work to do worthy of the Gospels, let us all say, Amen.